Hey, Taylor Ray here with a quick editor's note up here at the top. We go into the story of Star Wars Battlefront 2 about the microtransactions and loot box controversy with a lot of public outcry just hours before it launches, literally minutes after we recorded this episode earlier. The news broke that EA and DICE have confirmed officially that they are temporarily turning off microtransactions, in-game purchases using real money until they adjust and balance that economy. So breaking news tonight about that. More on our Twitter account. Remember to follow us at 1PVS2P. And thank you for listening to this episode, episode 90. Hello, you're listening to the 1P versus 2P podcast. Plausibly live, talking about video game news, reviews, history, music, and culture. I am your host, Taylor Ray. With me, as always, is my co-host and brother, Ryan Ray. Hey, Taylor. It's been a while. It has. Yeah, we're recording a lot less frequently nowadays, but we do do a lot of work on our website and across our social media channels. And a quick update here at the top about that. We've changed our Twitter handle from at 1PVS2P underscore podcast. It's been that way for, what, 80, 90 episodes up to this point. We've now changed it to something much more simple to remember it's at 1PVS2P. So very simple. We've sort of unified our brand across all our social media channels. We do so much more than just this show, just this podcast. We do video work. We share a lot of interesting articles from the gaming industry all over our social media channels on YouTube, Facebook, uh, even SoundCloud. We curate a lot of game music through there as well. So just to recap, Twitter at... 1P VS2P. Follow us on there. We're very, very active there. Uh, and thanks again for following. All right, let's get into video game news. <laughs> Earlier this month, a lot of stuff has happened, a lot of buzz surrounding this given. Well, we're recording this on Thursday, November 16th, but you're going to hear this. This will be posted on Friday, November 17th, which is the release date for Star Wars Battlefront 2. A lot of controversy swirling about this, reigniting a lot of talk about microtransactions and loot boxes. Ryan, recap the story for us. Definitely. Uh, at, you know, As you know, many of this Falls games, including Shadow of War, Destiny 2, Forza 7, you just mentioned Battlefront 2, all have loot boxes. Uh, if you're not familiar with that, these are basically systems in which you can spend real money to get randomized gear or loot in the form of these random treasure boxes. Gamers all over the place have been really upset by the inclusion of these microtransactions. Typically, you buy you know the $60 game, and then all of a sudden, you're getting an upsell on $3, $5, you know, best value, however many loot boxes. And uh, typically, they have some kind of impact on your progression. Ideally, not, but sometimes they're cosmetic loot boxes like in Overwatch, or sometimes, as is been more recently the case they actually have more of a gameplay impact more of an impact on your progression right like in shadow of war basically the real ending of that game is locked behind a grind which you can do without paying any real money but then it becomes a grind and it's much easier to just pay 10 bucks and get the best orcs in that case that come out of the loot boxes to kind of help speed that process along it seems artificially imposed in the effort to get as much money out from people who've already spent $60, uh, maybe a little bit less on a AAA game, right? Right. And it, there's been a lot of talk about whether or not this constitutes gambling because the odds of you getting 
a you know legendary or the best loot possible in these boxes often is not posted because it's not it's not required to legally uh in china it is and increasingly more countries are looking at some of the conversation around loot boxes and whether or not it's gambling and considering taking some some action uh belgium for for example today belgium's gaming commission is currently taking a look at loot boxes and video games particularly focus focusing on star wars battlefront 2 and overwatch they've been saying that the practice of of buying these add-on boxes uh may constitute gambling uh the esrb has also commented the esrb of course is the the u.s ratings board and uh, they have a quote that i'm going to read here from a kotaku story uh last month they said Quote, ESRB does not consider loot boxes to be gambling. While there is an element of chance in these mechanics, the player is always guaranteed to receive in-game content, even if the player unfortunately receives something they don't want. We think of it as a similar principle to collectible card games. Sometimes you'll open a pack and get a brand new holographic card you've had your eye on for a while, but other times you'll end up with a pack of cards you'll already have. Now, I just want to note here that the ESRB is also an industry board uh, it's set up by video, the big video game publishers, EA, Activision. Uh, so it has kind of a dual role. It's sort, it's a semi-governmental body. Uh, so of course the SRB is going to have the video game companies, big companies and publishers' interests at stake when they say stuff like this. That's true. So yeah. what do you think about all of the loot boxes that are happen- happening right now in gaming? This seems to be the big hot topic. This has been a trend going on for the past 10 years, going back to the previous generation, and unfortunately, it's only gotten worse over time. I think right now we're at the sort of tipping point, let's call it that, watershed moment. I think people ultimately are very, very fed up. And I think also in this industry, it rapidly, dramatically, you know, companies started implementing this stuff much more heavily with the advent of mobile's popularity, right? Nearly every game that you see hitting the top of the charts, being most downloaded on both Android and iOS platforms, uh, the majority of of them are free-to-play games riddled with microtransactions. And the goal of a lot of these developers and publishers is to try to squeeze as much extra money after playing these games without ever having to to pay that initial purchase price, right? So it's an interesting concept, and I get why it will never go away. Now, to the extent at which it's exploiting consumers who've already paid full price for a lot of these console games, especially given Star Wars Battlefront 2, which retails at $60, I mean, you're going to find a bunch of sales on it very, very quickly, I imagine, right now, given this whole controversy. But I will say that EA has responded several times over this, just this past week, their their launch window. And, you know, they're, they're hearing the fan feedback. They did an, uh, an AMA on Reddit. That didn't go very well. They, I think they just broke the record for one of the most uh, downvoted comments in Reddit history explaining their position on including microtransactions and the time it takes to grind out some of people's favorite Star Wars heroes and characters like Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker. There have been player estimates out there saying currently pre-launch that it takes about 40 hours for you to grind to earn in-game currency to unlock one hero. Now, as we're recording this, there will likely be uh, changes across the board. EA can change the the monetary values at any time. And I know, Ryan, you found some 
late breaking changes that people are noticing on Twitter, even the day before this game is released. Right. Uh, Jason Schreier has been uh, saying on Twitter that rumors are swirling that EA is about to pull an Xbox One, which is a reference to when Microsoft first announced the Xbox One. They kind of reversed. Uh, originally, the Xbox One was going to be more of a media platform. And then within almost uh, a month of the, the console's launch, they've reversed course and, and tried to change their policy. On the always online feature, right? Correct. And uh, he's he's pos- he's hearing that potentially EA might be pulling their uh, microtransactions from Battlefront 2. And in fact, uh, Jeff Gersman of Giant Bomb uh, tweeted out a picture that says, uh, it would appear that the ability to purchase crystals, which I guess is the uh, in-game currency for Star Wars Battlefront 2, yeah, with real money has been removed. And he showed a, a screenshot from his his game. Uh, you know, this, this controversy is going to continue. I think one of the reasons why it's happening you know, the sales data bears this out. Loot boxes are actually very, very popular. People are buying them in lots. So publishers and developers are incentivized to include them. And increasingly, the $60 that you pay to buy a game isn't covering the costs of development, marketing. You know, games have gotten more expensive to make. And the price of the games... Right. These budgets are astronomical. Right. And the price of games hasn't gone up in, you know, basically since you and I were kids. And they have to make up the money somewhere. And so they've had it, you know, before it was horse armor, then it, it with mobile games, right? Farmville had, you, you could pay money to have more energy, to do more things, to buy more stamina, to do all this. This is, this kind of stuff has plagued video games for a long time. Uh, you know, even arcade machines back in the day were designed to eat up more of your quarters, kill you quicker so that you would feed more quarters into the machine. And this is just the natural progression of that loot boxes, uh, you know, kind of playing more into the seedier gambling side of things where i have a problem with it not only where it hampers progression in a game but it also may be preying on people who may have gambling tendencies or you know may be falling into the traps of addiction you know they keep buying these loot boxes i mean we haven't heard any horror stories of people mortgaging their homes to buy uh you know loot boxes in overwatch but (laughs) I hope we never but, do. <laughs> but with, you know, so many more loot boxes happening in more games, you could see a scenario where that could really happen and be an actual real problem. You know, these this is already hurting people quite a bit. And, you know, where where does it end? Well, I'm not morally objected to loot boxes in general and microtransactions. I get it. I get the reason and the business cases behind them. I think now this tipping point revolves around the fact that Star Wars Battlefront 2 these microtransactions give you gameplay advantages in the sense that you are getting uh, cards, things that unlock upgrades for your weapons, uh, other new weapons and gadgets uh, to be used in games, new heroes that other people don't have access to. And for someone who doesn't pay into the microtransactions in the game, they have to spend hours and hours and hours grinding it out to earn that same content. So it really gives sort of an unfair gameplay advantage. And that's something I even noticed when I tried the beta. I did play the beta on PC, and I immediately noticed that. I thought that was a bit strange that I was getting stat upgrades for certain weapons through loot boxes. And I thought, wow, this is going to be scary. Versus something like Overwatch. Overwatch, I think, does a little bit better of a job because all of those things that you're unlocking... Although they're all randomized, you never know what you're going to get. They're all blind boxes. They're all cosmetic related. I, I would feel a little bit better about loot boxes if uh, the process was a little bit more transparent, if we did see the odds. You know, Dota 2 a while ago had this uh, 
issue where people were not knowing what is in the loot boxes. And then v- Valve decides, like, okay, we'll tell you what your odds are of getting these items and what items potentially you could get with these specific loot boxes. Because in that game, you know, there were even different flavors of loot boxes, right? Seasons, ones tied to the international. But if we're going to have, we're going to start to see loot boxes in single player story games, you know, let us know what is in the box if you're going to continue to let loot boxes be a thing. Why make this this like black box where you don't know what you're buying when, uh, you know, what the progression is, all that stuff. It it needs to be more transparent. And the more you try to obfuscate it, the more people are going to be angry and frankly, probably not going to be wanting to buy your game. Right. So, uh, speaking of uh, EA and, uh, well, some interesting news, let's say. I, I don't know how to feel about this, but maybe uh, our conversation will shake it out. Uh, EA is buying Titanfall developer Respawn for over $400 million. This is a story that kind of came out at the end of last week. Uh, Taylor, why don't you recap it for us? Well, the reason why this is specifically interesting is because EA, by the way, as a publisher, historically is known for uh, acquiring. It's a giant publisher, right? They're known for acquiring smaller studios, buying out competition, uh, poaching top talent, and then shutting down these these same studios. Uh, they've had a long history of that. We don't need to recap that stuff. But the most recent one, the most recent example was EA shuttering Visceral Games. Visceral known most mostly for the Dead Space franchise. So a lot of people were sort of forlorn about that because they know that EA may not use that license going forward. EA having published those games before. Uh, so it, it's likely the end of Dead Space as we know it. Just those three games and that's about it. And what, what makes this a little bit juicy in the industry here is that EA did the sa- same thing with Respawn, in the sense that Titanfall 1 and Titanfall 2 were initially developed by Respawn and published okay, by EA. So if history tells us anything, they are likely to shutter it down in the future. Now, that's a huge amount of money that they're uh, spending to acquire these studios. But again, in the long run, it probably pays dividends uh, for these studios. There, there are financial incentives, business reasons why they go through these smaller studio acquisitions. Right, EA. The EA acquisition is basically a kiss of death, or it has been. You know, EA hasn't had the best track record. Yeah, I'm trying to it wrap my be, brain about like more recent examples over the past couple of years. I mean, Ma- famously, Maxis, right? The developers of Sim- of SimCity was probably the last big profile one. But I mean, their their <laughs> their record on this is just a, a graveyard of smaller studios. It's really sad. And, and the use of licenses, right? They they just let licenses die out. Very popular ones, right? And specifically. Specifically, Titanfall 2, so EA was the publisher, Titanfall 2 was released between EA's big shooter game, Battlefield 1, and Call of Duty, you know, rival Activision's, the, the other big shooter that year. Of the three, I would say probably Titanfall 2 was uh, the best gameplay-wise, but sales... Critically acclaimed, yeah. But sales-wise, uh, it was the weakest of the three. Uh, Battlefield 1 performed the best sales-wise, and uh, EA probably had had something a little bit to do with the the timing window so they went ahead and, and bought the studio and respawn buying respawn in particular is pretty interesting because that developer uh is headed by former uh call of duty designers jason west and vince zampella who the reason that they formed respawn in the first place was to get away from activision <laughs> right yeah <laughs> so now now they got out from activision and now they're under another uh publisher another big publisher and now it has everybody wondering if uh 
by the way, when this announcement was made, uh, they kind of backdoored a Titanfall 3 announcement. So Titanfall 3 is coming. Now we're all wondering if Titanfall 3, uh, what that game is going to shape up to look like now that it's under EA's umbrella. And if it's going to have the, you know, the standard, uh, EA shooter thing now with loot boxes and, uh, it's going to affect the multiplayer progression. And if the business of EA is going to get hamper, is going to hamper the, the, the actual game of Titanfall 3. The other ramification of this is that there was another Star Wars game that was being published, uh, excuse me, being developed by Respawn that has since been canceled. And that was a huge bummer to a lot of people because that was something that had been in development for a long time. It was an action-adventure Star Wars game. That, that Not many details had been released about it, but you know, EA, with this acquisition, announced, hey, we're shutting this down. Maybe the project isn't going so well. So that angered a lot of people on top of that. And I think that was headlined by, is it Amy Hennig, who's pretty well known in the industry, a head writer? That was, so she was uh, at Visceral. Oh, she was, was at Visceral, right, when they shut her down. Correct. Visceral. Sorry, my mistake. Yes, that's right. right. And when I when I think about why that happened, uh, you know, that was basically, or the rumors were that that game was basically going to be Star Wars, but Uncharted. And when I think about the good Star Wars games, the good Star Wars game, like the good Star Wars games I'm talking about, like Knights of the Old Republic, yep. or uh, even uh, you know Dark Forces, or uh, Shadows of the Empire, or the X-Wing, X-Wing games, versus Tie Fighter, X-Wing Tie Fighter, uh, they're games that are in the Star Wars universe but tell their own stories. Right. And sort of tangential to the mainline uh, core movies. Right. And uh, when we talk about the Star Wars games that are coming out nowadays, it's more referencing like, you know, it's playing on your nostalgia, right? Like Star Wars Battlefront 2 has heroes like Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, Darth Maul. Han Solo, yeah. yeah. Han Solo, the more recent Force Awakens characters. And, you know, say what you will about the quality of those games, but by referencing like more of the movie star wars things you could say that they're not as original so right yeah there, there it is <laughs> right uh so it it leaves you know star wars aside it leaves an open question about you know uh whether ea can really uh take respawns f game development efforts and do something really awesome with titanfall or just continue to poach their talent and uh, leave another studio in the dust I guess we'll have to wait and see, but again, as history tells us, that is more likely than not the case. <laughs> so we'll revisit that when we hear about response shuttering after Titanfall 3. Uh, anyway, the Xbox One X, that is now out. A lot of reactions about this new hardware from Microsoft. What are the reactions so far about it, Ryan? I personally, I did not upgrade it. I still have my Xbox One, uh, the original launch one. I don't see a need to upgrade yet. Well, so basically the consensus seems to be that the Xbox One X is a good piece of gaming hardware for $500. It runs games at 4K resolution. It runs them smooth, smoothly and quietly. But it's also an Xbox One, a console that has, frankly, been struggling to keep up with the PS4 uh, since the two launched within a week of each other back in 2013. Uh, the Xbox One, I, I mean, I'll just say it. This is not. This is objective fact. I'm not trying to delineate anything here but it doesn't have as many games it certainly doesn't have as many big exclusives right there is a list of uh games that are xbox one x enhanced uh and it's very long which i think is a very good thing however there are only three recent titles on that list assassin's creed origins which came out not too long ago forza 7 again this year and shadow of war the flagship title that is missing that should have been there 
when this was originally announced as Project Scorpio, Crackdown has been delayed into next year. So they don't have a temple release to come along outside with their like big, new, more powerful box. Well, to be fair, to contrast with the PS4, though, with the PS4 Pro, there aren't that many supported games that run in enhanced pro mode. Right. So just to be fair, I don't think either are really great value propositions. Right. We said when these first these iterative consoles first came out, we knew this was going to happen when people were buying phones on a yearly basis, like, and the phones were getting incrementally better. That, like, okay, well, we're going to just like time our watches to see when this happens to consoles. And here it is. And the like, PS4 Pro and Xbox One X are coming out and sure they're more powerful machines, but to do what exactly, right? Like when Prey came out earlier this year, that said that from launch it had PS4 Pro support and then it totally wasn't there at yeah. all. Right. <laughs> they later patched and, it and in, yes. <laughs> I think the hard the hard part that Microsoft and Sony are finding out is that you can talk all you want about the graphics upgrades and frame rates being a lot better. And resolutions but it's so higher, hard to, yeah. It's so hard to sell this when not all the games that are coming out from that point forward don't have these enhancements attached to exactly. it. Exactly. And not right. Like if it was a point where it's like, okay, new console is coming out, all games from this point forward will have all these enhancements, smooth frame rates, beautiful graphics, no problems at all. That would be one thing. But that has not been how the story has played out. And it continues to be an issue, right? Now the Xbox One X comes out, five hundred US dollars, like for for an incremental upgrade for a console that it seems to sales wise it seems to be doing well. Uh, according to NPD, uh, 800,000 units of the Xbox One X sold in the UK, uh, which is, you know, relatively... That's, those are pretty strong numbers, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's relatively equivalent to, like, Switch launch sales the first week, right. which is very good for Microsoft. But on the other hand, like, to what effect? I think it's because these are people who didn't already originally own the Xbox One or Xbox One S, the smaller version. And... To me, that makes sense. If you're getting into one of these consoles, your best bet to future-proof yourself is to buy either the PS4 Pro or the Xbox One X. Now, granted, how do you take advantage of the 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 better power, the better GPU, right? These more powerful boxes is that you have to have 4K-ready TVs. And a lot of people still don't have that. I think 4K displays are still cost-prohibitive right now. Right. May change starting with this Black Friday, but I don't know. Right, we're getting to the point where 4K seems to be like where HD was maybe a generation ago, where like they're starting to become more commonplace. And when people are on their TV upgrades, you're likely to buy an, a TV that has 4K capability. Of course, why wouldn't you? But did you see the story, I, I think it was this week, from Bloomberg, Phil Spencer, who's a head of Xbox, saying that uh, it seems like the direction for Microsoft moving forward is uh, he didn't basically come out and say this is the last Xbox, but he did say that Microsoft's direction moving forward is that they're probably going to do more software sales. They're going to target a like stream more streaming service for their gaming uh, as opposed to making more hardware, which if you look at where Microsoft is at with their like Office or Windows, they're trying to give it more like subscription-based, you less buy their products and their hardware. I mean, they're selling the Surface and whatnot, but like they discontinued the Zune a while ago. They're not making the Microsoft phone. Right. Like <laughs> the th- Windows phone. It's yeah, harder, yeah. Right. It's harder and harder to find Microsoft hardware, but on the software side, like, you know, the, with the Xbox Play Anywhere, like I can buy most of Microsoft's first party lineup on the PC right, without and, yeah. without any extra baggage from the Xbox One. So we may, we may get to a point where 
the Windows Store turns into the Xbox Store. I mean, we're already there, right? Yes, like, that's the point. I yeah, I don't have to buy an Xbox One to play Forza or Gears of War Four. Basically, all of Microsoft's first party lineup. Right, because there was that decision made a while back. They've announced this, I think, in a past E three where they announced that on the development side, the this universal Windows platform UWP. When when you're developing a game for Xbox One, you're also developing it for Windows 10. You're optimizing it for Windows 10. So if you have some halfway decent PC to run it on, people are you know spending their money and getting it in both places. But you can totally see where this is going. Right, that more and more people are owning gaming uh, ready PCs and are playing these games more on Windows 10 because uh, the Xbox One. It hasn't had as strong sales as the PS4 has, let's say, in this generation. Now, that is to say that there are still a lot of people out there that still prefer consoles. They don't want to deal with the hassle of building their own machine, having to troubleshoot hardware-related issues, having to deal with compatibility problems. A lot of PC ports are still pretty poor because a lot of companies uh, outsource that to third parties and they don't do a great job with QA. So I, I get the need still for these these powerful consoles that live under your TV that are reliable and consistent, but it's just not for someone like you and me that go in and buy consoles closer to their launch windows initially. Uh, until Microsoft can uh, acquire more exclusives, put out some more, many more worthwhile games, I think they're still going to struggle behind over the next couple of years behind Sony and Nintendo. I will say that the one thing, good piece of this that I do think, uh, I hope happens, is that with the Xbox One, Microsoft has been way better about uh, Xbox 360 and original Xbox backwards compatibility. Oh, yes. And I... I would hope that, well, with uh, Phil Spencer there saying that he wants to see more game streaming capabilities, a lot like PlayStation Now, I think is what he's referring to. I would like to see, you know, original Xbox games and uh, Xbox 360 and hopefully uh, eventually Xbox One games uh, come to the PC via backwards compatibility. Like, it would be cool to see, I don't know, what would be like a, an Xbox, like, you know, Blinks the Time Cat, even though I don't like Blinks. <laughs> How uh, about Ninja Gaiden? It, it, let's, let's go with that. Sure. Nin- Crimson Skies. Those are both two games that are already right. there. Yeah. Right. Fusion Frenzy. Right. It would be cool to see those platform, those games come to the PC finally, finally yeah. through backwards compatibility. There would have to be some em- emulation stuff that happens, but it seems like Microsoft is getting there. Right. All right. Moving on to our last major news story. Nintendo shut down their very popular uh, Miiverse social networking service that it was introduced uh, with the Nintendo Wii U. It launched in late 2012. Basically, with the Wii U and the 3DS, with the stylus, you can draw uh, pictures, you can uh, type in hints for games. There was a lot of neat, clever integrations with games like Super Mario Maker, uh, what else, Splatoon, and you saw a lot of people sharing their 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 photos through those communities uh, within the Wii U and 3DS infrastructures, and then also sharing them on social media. Now it's officially shut down five years later. Uh, a lot of fond memories, people sharing their highlights, a lot of streams on people playing with the Miiverse in its final hours. And sort of as a, a very fond farewell, Nintendo also shared this giant portrait collage of user drawings, uh, thanking and people missing the Miiverse. Even Shigeru Miyamoto drew some thank you, uh, goodbye uh, pictures as well so uh sort of a fond farewell to the meverse any any lasting memories ryan you know i thought its integration was really cool it's certainly one of the most odd gaming social network experiments that nintendo has been a part of i, I i've said it before and i'll say it again 
uh, Nintendo is at its best when it's weird Nintendo. And uh, that Nintendo of all companies would would do something like this for kids and police it and make it an, honestly an integral part of some of these games. Super Mario Maker would not have been the same game without the Miiverse. Um, there was literally a Miiverse stage in the, the latest Super Smash Brothers. Yes, uh, it was really it was it was cool. It was weird. I hope Nintendo uh, takes their lessons that they learned from the Miiverse and and does it better in a, a maybe on the switch or any uh, future endeavors that they do uh goodbye me we salute you uh and, and there was nothing quite like it there wasn't any of this heavy integration and i think the reason why nintendo has ended it is because it probably required a lot of time and money to moderate it to make it ultimately kid-friendly and now you see with the nintendo switch you have native integration with posts to facebook and twitter and that has been very 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 popular people sharing screenshots uh sharing video replays and that's been awesome, and I think that ultimately uh, is the direction they want to move forward in and sort of abandon the 3DS and the Wii U hardware with, with the Miiverse. It probably wasn't worth right. it to them in the long run. Right, but but they never would have gotten there without the Miiverse, right? So, of course, yeah. yeah. Let's, let's talk about what we've been playing. Enough with the news. Taylor, what have you been playing? What are you buying? Well, I think we've been playing, as we came up with this list, we've been playing literally the exact same games over the past month. So starting off, let's let's talk about Super Mario Odyssey because that's that 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 game is huge, a lot of very positive reactions, uh, critically acclaimed. You know, add me to the list. I think this is one of my top five Mario games of all time. Period. I mean, it might be even in my top three. I really love this this game. This game is just a giant nostalgia trip. You're it's constantly rewarding. There are moons which are the equivalent to Super Mario sixty four stars. Uh, they're just constantly moons that you're you're acquiring you're constantly being i like to call them endorphin shots <laughs> it just feels good to constantly find these these secrets and easter eggs in, in super mario odyssey i think it's so clever and witty and fun and whimsical it's all of these things and and it it's just it, it's really something else it's really great it, it's an essential title for the nintendo switch so far if you don't own this game if you don't own the nintendo switch yet this should be your first purchase right along with breath of the wilds let's not discount that True. but but mario a good mario i've been waiting a good long time for a good mario game uh you know you could you could argue uh, we can we can have the debate about mario games on wii u uh i think mario galaxy and mario galaxy 2 were probably the two last uh 3d mario platforming games uh on nintendo's major consoles that i would would consider in the like you know we can have again arguments all day about what the main mainline mario canon yeah, is yeah I, I think but, i know what you're <laughs> alluding to you're referring to that jeremy parish ranking that was on polygon that was circulating around about ranking the core mario games man that was yeah let's not let's that, I, don't, some, I don't want i don't want some opinions go, are more wrong than others come on now <laughs> I, I don't i don't i don't want to i don't want to go there i i see where he's coming from but anyway well, well, can we just I say would, can we just say at least what he ranked number one was New Super Mario Brothers U, and that was just a travesty of the history of Mario <laughs> games. Wouldn't you agree? Come on now. Well, I don't think it's a travesty. I mean, you're allowed to have your opinion, but I, <laughs> I, I, I would certainly agree. Uh, keeping bring this back to Mario Odyssey, I would certainly agree that Mario Odyssey is one of the top Mario games that has ever been released. It's certainly been a while since we've seen a game of this scale. It's just it's a delight to play. Uh, from start to finish, it has some really surprising. Uh, it it turns some of the the Mario conventions on their head. Uh, you know the whole capturing enemies to uh, use their abilities to solve puzzles to get more moons. And uh, there's a specific part at the end that I think we'll we'll say for game of the year. I think is a very uh, a neat 
tie into uh you know what mario games have really been all about this whole time and it's a delight and they give you an incentive after you complete after you see credits in that game to uh, continue to collect more moons there are 999 moons in this game you will complete the main campaign probably around the time you collect 150 to 200 moons uh i i I think i finished around uh, like 170 right now i'm at uh, probably like 340 moons. Yeah, I, I finished with about 200 collected, and I'm start. I'm nearing 300 right now. But it's just it's just a fun to move around as Mario in that game. It's fun to jump. Uh, there are some kingdoms that are worse than others. Um, I, you know, I I, I think uh, some of my favorites have been like Seaside. There's a kingdom at the end. I loved Bowser's Castle. I love Bowser's Castle. Bowser's Castle is also super cool. There's a kingdom in the end that I don't want to spoil. That's a really neat throwback. Uh, yeah. it's, it's, yeah, don't mention it's, it. Now. Uh, <laughs> That's yeah, a huge spoiler, it, but it's, it's what, a, what a delight. Yeah. Uh, I can't speak to the two player mode. Uh, I think like Mario galaxy, it's probably not all that great, but you know, again, we have a whole new generation of Nintendo fans growing up and it's good that they're finally getting uh, a real taste of what Mario games can be. And I'm so glad that it, it turns out to be Mario Odyssey and that song, that song, yes, the, the yes. theme song. Yeah. Jump up superstar. You're, you're referring I, to the New Donk City area, which is like a like a New York City equivalent. And there's there's humans there, like humans appearing next to Mario is very strange. It it's it's so fun, and and it's just a wonderful moment in midway through that game. Uh, this, this big song and dance number. Uh, I'm sure if you've paid attention to Nintendo's promotions recently, E3, you've heard the song, things like that. So it's. It, it it it's great, and the costumes are also fantastic. The con- you're constantly unlocking new stuff uh, through normal coins that you collect, or in world specific specific coins to each kingdom. They're purple coins, and and, and the costumes are just cleverly designed. There's some really great stuff in there. Some really 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 funny uh, references in there that I'm not going to spoil if you haven't played it yet. We're going to revisit this during our game of the year deliberations coming yeah, in December. I, that- that would be my final thought. This is definitely a, a contender for for the conversation. Yes. Uh, what what a what a triumph! Uh, let's talk about Pyre, which you and I have uh, well, I've completed. You're playing it right now. Yes. Uh, what do you think of Pyre so far? Okay, so for people who aren't aware of what Pyre is, Pyre is best described as NBA Jam mixed with Oregon Trail. I know that sounds like a weird elevator pitch, but somehow it works. Okay. These are the developers behind uh, Bastion and Transistor, uh, Supergiant Games. They're very well known for their their art style uh, and uh, voice work. They've made some very popular games in in the past couple of years. And with Pyre, I think they've done an excellent job with their their world building and and style. My only complaint about this game is that there's a little bit too much story and exposition between these matches. So. The way Pyre works is you're like this traveling band of outcast misfits banished to this sort of hellscape area. Let's call it that, right? And in order to sort of uh, redeem yourself, you need to perform these what they call rites. Like they're, they're sort of like rites of atonement. You are just competing. It's like a basketball style like game. Basketball mixed with soccer. It's like three on three matches where there's there's a ball in the center and the the two teams are competing for who can put the ball in the hoop, uh, either by by dunking the hoop, it, you know, this theoretical dunking hoop, the hoop. Or, what? Yeah, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> you put the ball in the hoop. That's how this game works. <laughs> but yeah, but but what makes this game really interesting and unique is that 
you can only move one character at a time and you can also attack enemy players and sort of banish them temporarily so that three on three all of a sudden turns into advantages where it's like three on two or three on one or sometimes three versus zero and you're also vulnerable to the same things the enemy ai can attack you um and eventually as you score as many points you either win or lose the right these games these rights are you can lose them and the game will advance the story will advance with auto checkpoints so it affects the story with branching paths in a way that i wasn't really expecting but the time spent between these matches these rights I just think the game is kind of lags a little bit. So I'm a little disappointed by that. I'm about three and a half hours in and I've only played about five rights. I'm constantly having to scroll through text. I, I don't know. I'm not really getting too involved with the character building. I don't know. I think, Ryan, you're probably more of a fan of that kind of stuff. But I wish there was more. there were more rights built into the game. I agree with you that there is probably a little bit too much lore in this game, but I think the narrative is there to get you attached to the characters, and I think you're still early on to the point where you haven't really formed those bonds with the characters in your your troop of misfits. Uh, you know, you can kind of, if you win the, like, so at the end of, like, a season of rights, uh, you play one final, like, uh, World Cup or NBA Finals or whatever, you know, insert sports analogy here, uh, match to determine who gets to come up from this hellscape into the real world. Um, you know, you choose a player from the 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 best player on your, your team, and uh, you get to decide basically who gets to uh, leave hell forever. And uh, it's kind of an interesting concept. It's like, what if, uh, you know, LeBron had his best season ever and at the end of the season, he just quit, right? <laughs> I think this that's is basically, called retirement in real life. <laughs> right. But this, but this is basically the essential question Pyre asks you, you know, do you send up, you know, LeBron or do you send up LeBron's sidekick or depending on your relationships with these characters, you know, do you want to send up your best player or the one that you have played with the longest only to leave, you know, players you haven't been or characters you haven't been using as much uh to continue to go through the rights and the cycle all over yeah, again. Yeah, and and the the impact there is that there are RPG elements built into this. Correct. You're you gain experience, you have equipment, uh you have abilities, there are skill trees, uh different characters have different stats and advantages and that sort of thing. Yeah, and I will just say uh I think this this game deserves to be in the conversation for one of the most gorgeous looking games this year. I agree. The art the handcrafted art style is just I think uh between Bastion, Transistor and Pyre, I think Supergiant has finally nailed their like aesthetic with Pyre. It's a very strong the like art really plays into the game's themes, yeah. the music as well. A lot of great watercolor. Yeah, very well well done. All right, speaking of a game with great art, let's talk about Cuphead. Oh, man, Cuphead. Wow. I mean, just a lot of Game of the Year <laughs> preview we're doing in this episode. Uh, Cuphead is incredible. One of my favorite games this year. This is a, a game, if you haven't seen this yet, I don't know, you must be living under a rock, but Cuphead, uh, the art style is like these 1920s, 1930s, old-time Disney cartoons. Think think along those lines. And essentially, it's like a Gunstar Heroes or a Contra game where it's a uh, run-and-gun uh, 2D action platformer. Uh, and and it's it, I've heard people describe it as a boss rush, but there are also sort of uh, mini-platforming levels in between, in between bosses. And it's brutally difficult. Uh, it took me about only about 10 and a half hours to beat. I think, Ryan, you spent a little bit less time on it. but Yeah, about six hours. But six that's hours? Because I'm, what? Yeah. That's because I'm pretty good. Oh my god! <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but 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 
at, at any skill level, I think Cuphead is a lot of fun. Yes. Um, there are different abilities that you can buy, different loadouts that you can, uh, you know, equip uh, Cuphead or his uh, brother Mugman, uh, who's that you know that you can play this game in co-op. Yeah. Um, which I actually do think uh, the game scales a little bit. Uh, but it, having two players on the screen makes the action very, very chaotic. Yes. It's uh, hard to keep track of your character. There are a lot of bullet hell style moments in this game. It's not a shim up. It's not a shoot 'em up where you're. It's vertical scrolling. You're in a static. Uh, window, but bosses are ch- constantly changing forms, uh, and you're constantly dodging enemy projectiles. There's a lot of stuff going on screen, but it's so amazing to look at, even if you're not actively holding the controller. And I would say that the game does encourage you, as you play, to get better and progressively better and better and better as the you go through the bosses. Uh, the bosses do get progressively harder, but you know the bosses are also based on predictable patterns, like. You know, good video game bosses, there are patterns that, like, and tells that uh, while there can be slightly random, they also are, like, like it's built into the art so that, like, when one character is, like, wagging their finger, you know a certain kind of attack is going to come out. So you can kind of, like, follow the patterns and say, okay, well, maybe I can jump to this different pla- pattern or uh, this platform and avoid that attack or try up you know, the spread weapon instead of the homing weapon or the charge shot as opposed to the standard shot and, you know, really experiment with what kind of gameplay style uh, will best help you overcome the boss. Uh, It's really well done. I think the music in that game is fantastic. Yes, a lot of jazz elements in there, yeah. It's it's one of these games that has very, like, a very strong, again, just like Pyre, very strong thematic presence in its art and its gameplay. Uh, Really, really well done from a studio that nobody's ever heard of before. This is their first game studio, MDHR. A really, really good first attempt. I can't see how Cuphead can't be in the conversation for Game of the Year. It's it's really something else. Yeah, available right now on Xbox One and Windows 10, of course on Steam, GOG, those kind of places. Uh, so yeah, w- highly, highly recommend this game. It is fantastic. Yeah, and let's quickly talk about, uh, this has been a while since we recorded an episode, let's talk briefly about our time in Destiny 2's Raid. Uh, Taylor, you finally went to the raid with me for the first time. I did. I've done, I've done, I'm a veteran of Destiny 1's raids. Uh, what did you think of the raid? Uh, the raid's called Leviathan, and I mean, we spent hours on that thing. I mean, I think I wasted an entire Saturday <laughs> running through the raid the first time, trying to learn the mechanics of each encounter, and then the final ultimate boss of the raid. Uh, having to coordinate with, what was it, a total, of, it was it six people in our party? Mm-hmm. Having to voice chat and coordinate with uh, strangers. I mean, you and I were in the party, but the, the rest were people we just met online. That was intense and frustrating at times, but ultimately rewarding in the end. I'm really glad I did it. And if you're the kind of person who enjoys the MMO grind, if you enjoy Destiny a lot, there are incentives for you to go back and complete the raid to earn even better exclusive loot that you can't normally earn otherwise. It is so, so challenging, though, managing a party of six that are all, you know, they are difficult challenges built into these. Unfortunately, we ran into a couple of bugs, and that just wastes, you know, sometimes 30 minutes, an hour of your time, and there's nothing you can do about it, and you just have to restart it and just power through it, and that's frustrating. You also have to keep a few, uh, let's call them power bars next to you, so that, you know, you get few and few breaks in between (laughs) gameplay during the raid. It's just like any other any other raid in video games, right? There, there, there's a huge time commitment there. So I'll leave it at that. I would definitely try a new raid in Destiny 2, but right now we're in this 
mode of de- of Endgame Destiny 2, where we're at the level cap, we keep doing the nightfalls, we keep getting better gear, and, and then there's not much else to do, right? Don't you feel the same way? Right, you've reached the top of the mountain, there's, there's nothing left for you. Until the DLC. When the DLC hits, actually, there was news today that uh, the first piece of DLC will have an additional raid, so that's good for uh, all these people who are enjoying Destiny 2, that there will be more content for them to, uh, you know, grit their teeth through. But I think the one comment I would say about uh, this raid is it's probably the best of the Destiny raids that has ever been produced, but it's still, like, having said that, wait, still way too long, and still way too buggy. Uh, I think if the raids w- were more uh, like two to three hours as opposed to like minimum six to eight, or in our case, the first time you go through it when you're trying to explain all the mechanics and you're figuring out the puzzles with a group of six people, you know, that can take a full day. And that's 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 a big ask for a player base that can be very casual. You know, the hardcore players are going to are going to do that no problem but we have a friend who we regularly play destiny 2 with and he's not interested in doing it at the rate at all because the the you know asking a, a person to commit six hours to uh beat a video game level is you it's know just sit down and do yeah. and ba- bang your head against the wall to do one thing like and having to learn the mechanics that are that are complicated right to to do that over and over and over again like I don't think most people are up for that. So if they would shorten the length of them, maybe make the challenges, uh, gear it more towards you know the two to three hour mark, I think more people would be interested in doing this content. But again, it's it's the same thing that we said in the Destiny 1 raids. Like, they're the best levels in Destiny. It's like, unlike anything you've ever experienced in video games. Yes. But the, at the time ask is just way too great. Agreed, agreed on that front. Uh, any last thoughts on anything we talked about on our show? Uh, no, I'm just say, uh, this will probably want be one of the final episodes that we do before we record game of the year. I'm, I'm very excited. This has been a very great year in video games. Oh yeah. Uh, despite all the controversies, despite uh, all that stuff, man, this has probably been the best video game year since 2007. Uh, what is it about the years that end in seven? Yeah, it's 97. Just, it's another good year. It's, <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm, I'm really excited to have these Game of the Year discussions this year. Same here, yeah. So just previewing our Game of the Year coverage, we will probably split that up between three to four episodes like we've done in the past two years. Uh, ongoing coverage of that will uh, begin sometime in, uh, in December, uh, so you can listen to these episodes over the holiday breaks, hopefully. Uh, we'll also be posting our Editor's Choice picks and other special awards and overall Game of the Year awards on our website that's 1pvs2p.com we'll also be sharing these announcements uh if you follow us on twitter at 1pvs2p also on our facebook page facebook.com slash 1pvs2p all right let's wrap this thing up if you liked today's episode please subscribe to our show and rate and review us on apple Podcasts and Stitcher. We would greatly, greatly appreciate the reviews. They're a huge, huge help. You can also listen to us basically wherever fine podcasts are sold. YouTube, <laughs> Google Play Music, TuneIn, or our website, which is 1pvs2p.com, or search for us using your favorite podcast app. As always, we want to thank Phonetic Hero for the use of his songs for our show, Coffee Stomp and Super Manly Brothers X. Both songs are part of the compilation project Chip Tunes equals win. I'm Taylor Ray. That's my brother and co-host Ryan Ray, editors at 1pvs2p.com. Thank you for listening.
dunking the hoop, it, you know, this theoretical hoop, 